I want to look at um, the, the new covenant and the title. I always like it. In this church, you always ask me for a title. And um, I don't always have a title, um, except when I come here. But it's a good thing, because it concentrates the mind and makes sure that you're really focused on what you want to say. And the title is The New Covenant, So Much Better Than the Old. And um, that's our subject here this morning. Um, just one or two basic things. What is a covenant? Um, I guess if we ask uh, various people, they might come up with different answers. Here's my definition. A covenant is a relationship which is built on a mutual commitment. A relationship which is built on a mutual commitment. So God is making a covenant when he chooses a people and he says to them, I will be your God and you will be my people. The only difference is that when we make a covenant between one another, for example, a marriage. A marriage is a solemn covenant where mutual commitments are made to one another. We make vows to one another in a marriage. That's the most obvious example that will be familiar to all of us. And those commitments are entered into readily, uh, readily and are perhaps, you know, yes, we agree with those covenants and those, those vows that are made and uh, there's a sort of uh, mutual agreement. Sometimes in the covenant there's mutual negotiation to see what the term should be. If it was a business covenant of some kind, that would be the case. There'd be a, a negotiation. But of course, when God makes a covenant with us, it is so unequal, God is so holy, and we are his people, that he sets down the terms. That's the only fundamental difference, essentially, between a covenant that God makes and a covenant that is made between mere human beings. So the terms of the covenant are these. I will be your God. You will be my people. There's the relationship. And here are the terms of the relationship. These are the mutual commitments that we're entering into, and I'm telling you what they are. So that's how God enters into a covenant with people. Now, there are quite a number of covenants in the Bible, but I don't want to confuse us here. The Bible is principally concerned, principally interested in two such covenants in the Bible. And they are so important that we divide our Bibles at the point where the new covenant replaces the old. We all know, even the children in the front row, know that the Bible is divided into two, the Old Testament and the New Testament. And the word testament is exactly the same as the word covenant. Biblically speaking, there is no difference between the word testament and covenant. So we might as well divide the Bible and call it the Old Covenant and the New Covenant. And as I say, it's so important that that's how we divide our Bibles into two. No other way we divide our Bibles except in that way. And this is why the covenants, the Old Covenant and the New Covenant, are so obviously important just as we look at the contents page of our Bibles. Now, any covenant that the Holy God chooses to make with sinners like us is by definition a covenant of grace. You may hear people talk about a covenant of grace the covenant of grace. But every covenant that a holy God makes with sinners is by definition a covenant of grace. If God decides to have a relationship with us on any terms, that is astonishing. That is amazing. That's beyond anything that we could possibly expect because we are sinners and separated from us. He says, I want a relationship. I want to stop that distance that's been caused by sin. I want you to come back to me. I want to have this intimate relationship with you. I want a covenant with you. 
That's so gracious. So every covenant that we read of in the Bible that's made between God and his people is a covenant of grace by definition. So it's not surprising, therefore, that there are clear similarities between the old covenant and the new, the two most important covenants of all in the Bible. They are both covenants of grace. And so there are, as I say, uh, similarities uh, between the two. Um, first, for example, um, both of these covenants require a, a mediator. Moses was the mediator of the old covenant. The old covenant was formed and framed and delivered, signed and sealed on Mount Sinai. When the people of Israel came out of Egypt, they met at Mount Sinai. Moses was the mediator. Moses mediated between God and man, and he delivered it from God. Here are the terms. This is the covenant. What we call the old covenant was signed and sealed there. And of course, the Lord Jesus Christ is the mediator of the new covenant. Not just a holy man like Moses, but a holy God becoming man, the Lord Jesus Christ, who's sent down to be the mediator of the new covenant between God and man. That's what he's called in Hebrews 9 and verse 15, the mediator of the new covenant. So there's one similarity. Both covenants have mediators. Another similarity is as a result of the fact that the wages of sin is death. The very fact that because we are sinners, we deserve to die. So both covenants required the shedding of blood. And if you know your Bibles, you'll remember that at uh, Mount Sinai, Moses sealed the old covenant with many sacrificial offerings. And he said, this is the blood of the covenant which God has commanded you to keep. Those are the words in Hebrews 9 uh, and verse 20, quoting uh, Exodus 24 and verse 8. This is the blood of the covenant which God has commanded you to keep. And of course, we know, it's fundamental to our New Testament faith, that at Calvary, Jesus sealed the new covenant with his own blood. And as he had said at the Last Supper, this cup is the new covenant in my blood which is poured out for you. So you see that second similarity, that second necessary similarity between these two covenants of grace, between the old covenant and the new covenant. And then thirdly, there's just one more similarity I want to point out because it's important. Both covenants involve physical signs that indicate membership. The old covenant had, as you probably know, circumcision as the initial sign of entry. Every male was circumcised soon after birth. And then there was also an ongoing sign of inclusion in the Old Covenant. And that was their involvement in the sacrificial system. So that you had to take your sacrifices. You had to show an ongoing commitment to the blood of the covenant, the Old Covenant. By partaking in the sacrificial system, you were expected to go up to Jerusalem ultimately when the nation was established in Israel and say, yes, I am part of it and I'm signaling to everybody, I am part of this covenant. And if you didn't do that or you treated the sacrifices as though they didn't matter, you were virtually excluding yourself from the old covenant. And of course, it's exactly the same in the New Testament. 
Because in the New Testament, the initial sign of entry is baptism. That is how one physically enters into the new covenant. I'll say more about that in a moment, but just note that for the moment. And the ongoing sign of inclusion in the new covenant is the celebration of the Lord's Supper, which we will be partaking of. This, of course, is why, and, and if we lose sight of this, the privilege of taking part of the Lord's Supper, commemorating the once and for all sacrifice of the Lord Jesus Christ on, on, on Calvary and the shedding of his blood there, if we lose sight of that, we are virtually saying, well, I'm not really part of this covenant. That's why when people took this seriously and understood their covenant theology in a right way, hopelessly, hopefully a Baptist way, when they understood the importance of the covenant, they understood the importance of the Lord's Supper. They understood that it was a command. They didn't just take it lightly, as many Christians seem to do today, if it's not convenient or they're feeling a bit off, I don't feel like it today, I don't feel particularly Christian today, so I won't take the Lord's Supper. That's nonsense. That's why for, for in the Christian church, when it's healthy, when a person, if a person is excluded from the Lord's Supper, that's a terrible discipline because they're recognizing, they're saying, the church doesn't think I'm part of the church. The church doesn't think I'm part of the new covenant. I'm not acting like a Christian. It's a terrible act of discipline. Because I think most Christians today wouldn't consider it a problem at all if for some reason or other they couldn't take the Lord's Supper. But anyway, it's a mark of inclusion, a sign of inclusion that we voluntarily come and take the Lord's Supper. See the two, the two ordinances or sacraments, if you want, of baptism and the Lord's Supper, which are set up in the New Testament, reflect the initial sign and the ongoing sign of inclusion in a covenant. So there's parallels there between the old covenant and the new. But although these parallels are there, it is essentially in the differences between the two covenants that we see why the old covenant was replaced by the new. Essentially, according to Hebrews, and it is in Hebrews that you learn most about the, the covenants uh, in the New Testament, essentially the new is infinitely better. And I don't know whether you noted through our reading how often the word better appears. In fact, you can check it out for yourself. I think I'm right in saying that the word better appears in Hebrews more often than it appears in the rest of the New Testament put together. The writer of the Hebrews is incredibly keen on the word better, and it's always intimately connected with the blessings and benefits of the new covenant. We read in chapter 7 and verse 22 that Jesus has become the guarantor of a better covenant. And he says, um, this is because our Father has sworn on oath that his Son, our Savior, is the perfect eternal high priest we need, who once and for all has offered a better sacrifice. Chapter 9 and verse 23. That of himself. All the sinful priests and uh, imperfect offerings of the old covenant could only dimly foreshadow the perfect work of Christ upon the cross. But Hebrews tells us that the new covenant is better than the old one, not only because Jesus is an infinitely better mediator, which he is, but because the new covenant is, chapter 8 and verse 6, is established on better promises. This is important. Why is the new covenant so much better than the old? Because the new covenant is established on better promises. You see, the promises of the Old Covenant were essentially physical and time-bound. 
whereas the promises of the new covenant are essentially spiritual and eternal. In this letter to the Hebrews, it speaks of new covenant believers, the ones he was writing to. He says, you joyfully accepted the confiscation of your property because you knew that you had better and lasting possessions. That's chapter 10 and verse 34. He says, you joyfully accepted the confiscation of your property because you knew you had better and lasting possessions. And uh, that's such a new covenant statement because it's talking about spiritual possessions. It's saying, you realize that these physical blessings that you've got really are just transient. You're going to have to leave them behind. You're looking forward to better possessions, which are spiritual possessions. That, would, that wasn't how an old covenant believer would have, would have thought. Or at least it's not how just somebody who was part of the old covenant who didn't have a true spiritual faith would have thought. No, they would have said these physical blessings, my possessions in the land, my allotment, my house, my everything, these are the blessings of God. I'm not letting them go. I'm not going to joyfully accept their confiscation, thank you very much. That's not what the old covenant's all about, and it wasn't. They were right. So he says, look, you, you, you're really new covenant believers, how you joyfully accepted this. He says that uh, true old covenant believers were, were longing for a better country, a heavenly one. He says those who were really Christians or really believers under the old covenant, they, yes, they may well have been looking for a better resurrection and a, a heavenly country. But nonetheless, he says, none of them received what had been promised since God had planned something better for us so that only together with us would they be made perfect. That's chapter 11, verse 40. He's saying, look, yeah, there were two groups in the Old Covenant. There were those who were just trapped in the old material Old Covenant, just valued their possessions as a gift of God and would hold on to them for dear life. And if God took them away, he think there was just a judgment. That's not how New Testament believers believe, not how the New Covenant believers understand it. There were, yeah, true believers under the Old Covenant, and they were looking for a heavenly country and so on and so forth, but they're only going to receive that under the terms of the new covenant, together with us. They looked for them, they didn't receive them. They can only receive them now under the new covenant. Only under the new covenant can they be blessed in this way. And they'll be included in that because they were faithful under the old. That's what he's basically saying there. But I suppose what we most need to realize about the superiority of the new covenant over the old is that the new covenant can save us spiritually whereas the Old Covenant cannot. As uh, Hebrews puts it bluntly, chapter 8 and verse 7, if you've got it in front of you, for if there had been nothing wrong with that first covenant, no place would have been sought for another. Why replace it? Because there was something wrong with it. Chapter 7 and verses 18 and 19, if you turn back a page, the former regulation is set aside, that's the old covenant, is set aside because it was weak and useless. For the Lord made nothing perfect. And a better hope, there's that word again, is introduced by which we draw near to God. Essentially, the old covenant could not save because it required sinful people to keep God's holy law and they can't do it. The glorious thing about the new covenant, however, is that Christ came and kept the law perfectly on our behalf. 
So that means that our faith is no longer hopelessly in ourselves, but hopefully in the Lord Jesus Christ. As we trust him, this is the amazing thing, and I'll refer to that in a minute in more detail, but we find that the law of God is written on our hearts. So it is now something we find that we want to keep and that we in fact can begin to obey as the glorified Christ pours out his Holy Spirit upon us. But in any case, as I say, the promises of the new covenant are no longer dependent on our obedience, but are guaranteed by the obedience of Christ. And it's little wonder that Hebrews 8, which is the great passage basically on the superiority of the new covenant to the old, it's little wonder that Hebrews 8 quotes at length this amazing prophecy from chapter 31 of Jeremiah. This is, I think I'm right in saying, the longest Old Testament quotation in the New Testament. And it's quoted at length because it is so fundamentally important to the changeover from the Old Covenant to um, the New. Let's just read that again from verse 8 of chapter 8 of Hebrews. God found fault with the people and said, The days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the people of Israel and with the people of Judah. It will not be like the covenant I made with their ancestors when I took them by the hand to lead them out of Egypt because they did not remain faithful to my covenant and I turned away from them, declares the Lord. The the covenant is finished between um, God and and Israel and Judah. Never think that the old covenant was for the nation of Israel and still is, and the new covenant is for Christians outside. It's not, it's not true. It's been replaced. This is the covenant. Verse 10, I will establish with the people of Israel after that time, declares the Lord. I will put my laws in their minds and write them on their hearts, not on tablets of stone like Moses gave to the people under the old covenant, not exterior, external things which were there just to condemn them, which they couldn't keep, but he's writing them now on the fleshly tablets of our heart. That's incredible. I will be their God and they will be my people. Great covenant promise. And then no longer will they teach their neighbor to say to one another, know the Lord, because they will all know me from the least of them to the greatest, for I will forgive their wickedness and will remember their sins no more. And note the added comment in verse 13. By calling this covenant new, he has made the first one obsolete and what is obsolete and outdated will soon disappear, which is what convinces me that this letter was written before AD 70, before the destruction of the temple, before the disappearance of all the um, sacrifices which were now irrelevant. Eventually they were finished, completely finished. No longer can the old covenant be kept. God made sure of that. And it's foolish to hold on to something that can no longer be kept because it's been entirely replaced by the Lord God. And... um, Note also, though, verse 11. So important, isn't it? No longer will they teach their neighbor or say to one another, know the Lord, because they will all know me, from the least of them to the greatest. This is perhaps the greatest distinction between the old covenant and the new covenant. Because the old covenant was primarily physical, you were physically born into it. And male infants receive circumcision 
as a sign of entry. We've said that before. And so, as a child, as an infant, you entered into the old covenant. You were a member of that covenant. But because the new covenant is exclusively spiritual, you have to be born spiritually to enter it. You have to be born again. You have to be born from above. This is, you know, what we learn from the New Testament. John 3 or whatever, I mean, time and time again, we're taught this vital truth. You have to be born again. And uh, that means that baptism, as a sign of entry into the new covenant, is only for those who have come to faith in Christ. We, we don't believe, as some people say, in adult baptism. We believe in believer's baptism. We can see these vital distinctions between the Old Covenant and the New Covenant. Under the Old Covenant, it was a mixed community. Some believed in the Lord truly and were longing for a better country, but others weren't. They were just happy with the blessings and provisions under the Old Covenant in purely material terms. There was a distinction between those who were true believers and those who were not under the Old Covenant. And those who were true believers would say to those who were just believers in the material things, they would say to them, know the Lord. But in the New Covenant, you don't say that. Because everybody who's truly a member of the New Covenant knows the Lord. It's exclusively for those who are believers in the Lord Jesus. We wait until a person comes to faith, until God, by his sovereign blessing, has brought somebody to know the Lord Jesus Christ. And then we gladly baptize them and say, you have entered the new covenant. You are a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ. Baptism is a mark of entry. Baptism is parallel to circumcision. But you don't say, therefore, that baptism should be for infants. You've got to understand the differences in the covenant. Yes, there are similarities, but there are also differences. And that's so important, isn't it, for us to understand. And... Uh, that's why Paul said, for example, in Romans 9, not all who are descended from Israel are Israel. Because there were this mixed multitude under the old covenant. But in the new covenant, he says, yep, everybody knows the Lord. You don't need to say know the Lord to anybody there. Now, to be fair, as we begin to draw to a close, the old covenant was never intended to bring salvation. We've said the Old Covenant can't bring salvation, but we have to say also, to be fair, the Old Covenant was never intended to bring salvation. And the Apostle Paul, of course, explains this in quite some detail. Galatians 3, for example, um, the Old Covenant was intended to be a, a temporary holding covenant designed to protect the nation of Israel and designed to restrain the nation of Israel as well. And also to point forward to the new covenant. And I said I would keep it just to two covenants, the old covenant and the new covenant, but we just have to say that there was a sort of prototype of the new covenant, which dates all the way back to Abraham. And in Genesis chapter 15 and Genesis chapter 17, you read about the covenant that God made with Abraham. And Paul is at pains to say that the, new, the old covenant, which came later under Moses, doesn't in any way negate what the, the, the covenant with Abraham. That, that's in, in a sense, says Paul, the most important one of all, because the covenant with Abraham is the kind of, is the prototype new covenant, which is ultimately fulfilled 
in the new covenant, sort of jumping over the old covenant as though the old covenant was some kind of necessary parenthesis, but ultimately leads back to Abraham, the covenant God made with Abraham. And Paul, of course, is, 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 is full of this. And um, we read, for example, a very famous verse in Genesis 15, verse 6, that Abraham believed God and it was credited to him as righteousness. A verse that's um, quoted several times in the New Testament because it's so important and illustrating the fact that the covenant God made with Abraham is, of course, similar in this respect to the new covenant because the new covenant is dependent upon faith and not works. And the covenant that God made with Abraham is precisely the same in this way. Unlike the old covenant, that the material blessings were dependent upon works of the people of Israel. Abraham believed God and it was credited to him as righteousness. And um, again, another similarity would be that uh, um, God's covenant with Abraham was not confined in its blessings to one nation because it was before a nation, but God said that the covenant with Abraham would result from Abraham in blessing on many nations, the nations of the world. And again, Paul points back to that and he says, yeah, that's utterly fulfilled in the new covenant. Let, let's skip over the old covenant in that respect and we'll see the fulfillment in the new covenant. Well, I'm sure I said enough, probably more than you could take in all in one go, but let's just allow the writer to the Hebrews to have um, the final word as he draws a vivid contrast towards the end of his letter between those who are under the old covenant and those who are under the new. If you turn to Hebrews chapter 12, and um, in the NIV, the, um, the passage is described um, under a heading which says the mountain of fear and the mountain of joy. And this is, this is um, I, I guess, it's, it's the writer's closing statement on, on the covenants, which he's been so concerned about uh, throughout this, this letter. If, if you recall, the letter to the Hebrews was written to Jewish believers who, as a result of persecution, were thinking seriously about returning to Judaism. And the reason why the writer concentrates so much upon the superiority of the new covenant is because he says, this is absolutely crazy. This is, I can't understand what you're doing. You silly, clearly don't understand God's purposes in all of this. So I'm going to have to explain it all to you again in covenant terms. You want to return to the old covenant? He says, absolutely crazy. Let me draw the contrast out for you, he says. Um, verse 18 of Hebrews 12. You have not come to a mountain, to Sinai. You have not come to a mountain that can be touched and that is burning with fire, to darkness, gloom and storm, to a trumpet blast, or to such a voice speaking words that those who heard it begged that no further word be spoken to them, because they couldn't bear what was commanded. If even an animal touches a mountain, it must be stoned to death. The sight was so terrifying that Moses, even Moses said, I am trembling with fear. Is that the kind of covenant, he says, you want to return to? Surely not. Verse 22, in fact, you have come to Mount Zion. <coughs> the first covenant was sealed with blood 
and mediated by Moses on Mount Sinai when you came out of Egypt. The new covenant was sealed by the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ on Mount Zion, outside the walls of Jerusalem. This is a preferable mountain. You have come to Mount Zion, to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem. You have come to thousands upon thousands of angels in joyful assembly, to the church of the firstborn, whose names are written in heaven. You have come to God, the judge of all, to the spirits of the righteous made perfect, to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant, and to the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. He says, if you can't see this, then you're still in darkness. The veil is still over your eyes and your heart. You don't understand anything that's important. Surely you see how far superior the new covenant is to the old. And let's just close finally and definitely with this careful note of, of application that we ought to make in verse 25 when he's just said both those things, compare the mountain of fear with the mountain of joy. Verse 25, he says, See to it that you do not refuse him who speaks. If they did not escape when they refused him who warned them on earth, who refused the terms of the old covenant, as it were, how much less will we if we turn away from him who warns us from heaven? When we're invited by the terms of the new covenant, with all the freedom and all the glory, with all the grace and mercy and love that the new covenant brings to all people, how can we possibly escape if we refuse such an offer as that? And, of course, we can't. It's just a glorious privilege that we have. And I trust everybody here and everybody listening perhaps online, we are members of the new covenant because we've trusted in the Lord Jesus Christ and we are safe eternally because of him.